Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. This is the last Sunday of the old year, next week the first Sunday of the new, and it occurred to me that it might be worthwhile to spend some time in some important passages of Scripture that we rely on a lot as we talk about God's plan, but we don't always take the time to go back and really understand them. So over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at some key passages that really help us see the unity of Scripture, the unity of God's plan of salvation from beginning to end and how it all ties together. This week, we're going to be talking about the journey from Adam to Christ, and next week, we'll talk about the movement from Eden to Jerusalem. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul is talking about the great Christian hope of resurrection, he uses some interesting language in comparing Christ and Adam. He actually refers to Jesus as the last Adam. You see this even in uh, our worship this morning. If you go back to the first song that we sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, sometimes it's surprising in, in old uh, Christmas classics to realize the depth of theology that we end up singing sometimes unwittingly. But if you look at the fifth verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you read these words, Adam's likeness, Lord, efface, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam, from above, reinstate us in thy love. Second Adam is a reference to Jesus Christ. If we want to understand who Jesus is and understand the work that Jesus performs, there's some sense in which it ties back to the work of Adam. Paul says, just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ. And that's one way that Paul has of summarizing what the gospel is all about. For human beings who bear the image of Adam, the man of dust, to also bear the image of the man from heaven, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, that's what Jesus came into the world to do. Now, in the Old Testament, there are many types of Christ. In other words, there are many uh, people who end up being forerunners or pictures of Christ to come. And New Testament authors often will connect Jesus to those figures. So uh, he'll be connected to Moses, for example, by the author of Hebrews. He'll be connected to David. But it seems to me that perhaps the most important of these ties is this tie that we're looking at this morning to Adam. Because the tie to Adam is what puts the Alpha in the Alpha and Omega. Right? This is what shows the connection between the end of God's story and the beginning of God's story. If we can understand why Scripture talks about Jesus as the last Adam, then we can have some insight into the unity of God's plan of redemption, how the pieces fit together. That's what we're going to try to accomplish this morning. We're going to do it by looking primarily not at 1 Corinthians 15, but at another passage where Paul uses this same comparison, Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 verses 12 through 21, which is this great analogy that Paul paints between Adam and Christ. It's a 
passage where Paul says something really complicated, and he says it in a really complicated way. And as a result, it's full of difficulties, and there is no way that in half an hour or so we will plumb its depths. But my hope is that what we will manage to do is find the the structure, the outline of the argument and dig into it a little bit to understand why it is so important to see Christ and how he relates to Adam. Because to understand what Christ has done, we have to remember what Adam did. Before we look at the passage, I just want to talk us through it so that when we look at the text, we have a sense of what we should expect. So in the first part of the book of Romans, Paul is introducing the gospel. He's introducing the idea of justification by grace so that by the time we get to chapter five, he's already kind of made his initial push. And he's wrapping up that argument. He's going to transition into the implications of that gospel. And so if you read earlier in chapter 5 of Romans, Paul is basically giving us a, a summary of the gospel. He's saying that Christ died for us while we were still sinners, not because we were good people. We were still sinners and Christ died for us. And because of that, because of the shedding of his blood, we're justified. We're justified by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But Paul goes on to say that if that's true, if it's true that this atonement was made for us while we were still in rebellion to God, if God opened the door when we were still children of wrath for us to become the children of God, then now that we are those children, if we were justified by Christ's death, how much more can we expect to live through his life? to live through his life, and not only that, but to enjoy communion with him, to be able to rejoice in him in a way that we could not do before. All of that is what the gospel promises. Justification by grace promises. But as Paul speaks about these things, a certain objection comes to mind. And this is certainly something his original hearers would have thought about, because the picture that Paul paints of everything that the gospel delivers They already have a way of getting those things. You're telling me that through this gospel of Jesus Christ, my sins can be atoned for. You're saying that I can enjoy communion with God, but I already enjoy these benefits by keeping the law. Isn't that what the law is supposed to do? So as Paul talks about the gospel, he's going to need to talk about how the law fits in. What is the point of the law? And so we'll see him discussing how the law figures into this plan of salvation. He's going to reach back behind the law, though. And this is why it's significant that he's not just uh, comparing Jesus to Moses. He's comparing him to Adam. He's comparing him to the first man, going back to the beginning of humanity in order to understand the work of Christ. So he's getting back behind the law chronologically in order to explain the gospel. And in the process, he'll he'll explain for us what the real purpose of the law is too. Now, Paul's using an analogy here. He's saying one thing is like another thing. If you want to understand this, you need to know about that. And the thing that he's trying to explain to us is the work of Jesus. And the analogy is comparing it to the work of Adam. If you remember, it's been a while for some of us since we've been in school, but the way analogies work is I want to explain to you something that is unknown, and so I explain it through comparison to something that is already known. 
So I take something that we have in common, some understanding we have in common, some knowledge you already possess, and I show you how the thing you don't know is like the thing that you do know. Now, the thing we don't know in this passage, if we're the original hearers, is how Jesus's work works, how that, how that operates, how it functions. But the thing that we do know, if we have the inheritance that those first hearers did, we know what happened with Adam. We know how that all took place, basically the fall and original sin. We know that our first parent, Adam, given a choice to obey the commandment he was given in the garden, instead disobeyed. He ate the forbidden fruits, and in his fall, we all fell. There were consequences for that fall. It was not just the fall of a guy. It's not just that one man messed up. And then, coincidentally, everybody who came after him just happened to mess up in the same way. But rather, when Adam fell, there were consequences for his race, for his people, that that the whole human race inherited a fallenness, a corruption, and a guilt as a consequence of Adam's work. That's what people knew. They understood how that worked. They understood that they had born, been born into the world as sinners, that they hadn't entered the world innocent, perfect, and only later come under condemnation. They understood that because of Adam's sin, they all stood condemned. And now Paul uses that understanding to explain to them that in the same way your sinfulness is not just something you did, but something you are, something you received, the same thing is true for the work of Christ. It's something you receive. It is something given to you, not something you've simply done. That's the analogy. There's a similarity in the way that the work is received. The thing about an analogy is, by explaining the unknown in light of the known, you gain knowledge of both. And we need that knowledge because we don't have the inheritance of education, of history, of background that the first hearers of these words would have had. Um, For us, the known and the unknown could actually be flipped here. We're much more familiar with the work of Christ than we are with the work of Adam. And so oftentimes you would use a passage like this, not as a way to explain to Christians what Christ does, but as a way of explaining what Adam did, trying to get at the true nature and consequences of sin. But the thing about this sort of reciprocal knowledge and understanding where where the knowledge of one leads to knowledge of the other, the ignorance of one also uh, leads to ignorance of the other. And I would suggest to you that because we are not so in touch with the work of Adam, as scripture sees it, that maybe we don't understand the work of Christ as fully as we ought to. That by reconnecting with what was known before, but not so well known now, we might actually come to a fuller understanding of the work of Christ. Seeing where the story ends in Christ gives us a better understanding of what what Adam's work accomplished gives us a better understanding of the true shape of the problem, let's say. 
But when we begin to understand the true shape of the problem, then we can go back to Christ and start to see the true outline of the solution, which is greater than we often realize. It is more than we often give Christ credit for. The more we see the problem for what it truly is, the greater the glory of the solution is. And the inevitability of Christ as the only possible solution to the problem of sin becomes clearer. The more we understand Adam's work, the more we see that our only hope was the second Adam. So as you look at our text in uh, Romans 5, the way that it's presented for you in your order of worship is, is three discrete paragraphs. But in the mind of Paul, the way it's written is a little more complex than this. And as we work through it, really, we're going to be looking at five sections, five parts. He's going to introduce the analogy at the very beginning. He's going to tell us about this comparison between Adam and Christ. But in true Pauline fashion, he's going to stop halfway through and go on to a different topic. So rather than just telling us, oh, Adam is like Christ, he's going to say basically, you know how Adam is? Oh, and by the way, let's talk about this other thing. And on first reading, it may not be clear why he suddenly starts talking about this other thing. He goes into this digression about the law and when the law came in and and law and death and that sort of thing. And you read about that for a while before you get back to the main point. And then it's time to go back to the main point. But of course, this is Paul, so we don't do that. We don't go back to the main point. We go from the digression to a qualification because Paul thinks maybe hearing what he's about to say, you're going to misunderstand it. So before you can misunderstand it, he's going to correct that misunderstanding in advance. Once he's digressed and he's qualified, then he will go back to the analogy. He'll state it fully. Once he's done that, he'll go back to the digression on the law and, and, and bring kind of a fullness to that. So those five sections, you might think of it as sort of a one, two, three, one, two movement. We're going to work through those together. So beginning in verse 12, this is the introduction of the analogy. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then you get this long dash, which signifies an interruption. That's the first part of the analogy. He has stated what is known. He's talking about the work of Adam. That's what we know. Adam's sin introduced the reign of death, and that reign extends to all humanity, to all creation. Now, before he goes any further and and connects that reality of sin to Christ, he now goes into this digression concerning law. So, This is uh, two verses, 13 and 14. He says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. That's the ESV. I'm going to read to you a paraphrase that's a pretty close paraphrase from the Revised English Bible that that fills in some of the interpretive gaps but gives you a sense, I think, of of the the, the purpose 
that he adds in introducing the law. He says, for sin was already in the world before there was law, and although in the absence of law no reckoning is kept of sin, death held sway from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned as Adam did by disobeying a direct command. And Adam foreshadows the man who was to come. So why suddenly talk about the law in this context? We've gone behind the law to talk about Adam, but but Paul interrupts himself halfway through to talk about law, I think, because he knows that he's speaking to people who think law is the solution to the problem he's addressing. So when he talks about the problem of sin, the, the curse that comes from it, the death that reigns in all creation because of sin, he knows that people in their minds are connecting that problem with the solution that is the law. And so he addresses the place of the law. And he's going to do this in two parts. And in this first part, he explains, okay, so law changes the way we understand sin, but it doesn't solve the problem of sin. What happens when law comes in is we're able to count sin more accurately. We're able to see just how sinful we are. As you know, if you've ever dipped into the book of Leviticus and done a thought experiment where you attempted to to imagine what your life would be like if you kept, let's say, 10% of the Old Testament law, um, what that does, it tends to uh, convince you of the impossibility of keeping the law. And then you recognize that the law actually regulates things God doesn't approve of. Like you could actually keep aspects of the law faithfully, but still not be guiltless when it comes to the will of God, right? Because God's law in parts is going in and sort of putting fences around human bad behavior. The law doesn't solve the problem of sin. It just changes the way we calculate and know our sinfulness. We all fell in Adam's fall, even those, Paul says, who did not disobey as Adam did. Those who were not guilty as Adam was of contravening a direct command of God. Um, We could speculate about what exactly that signifies, but I think one thing it signifies is the guilt of all humanity. Oftentimes, the way that we imagine this working is we're all born sinless. If you uh, persevere in life, if you survive long enough, you, you eventually reach the age of accountability, which isn't specified in Scripture, and, and then you become responsible for what you do, and then you become a sinner. Here, a different view in mind. The condemnation that results in the fall applies to all human beings, regardless of age, regardless of action, regardless of of where they are on the relative scale of goodness or badness, all of us stand condemned as human beings. So the law is not a solution to the problem. Death came in because of sin, and the law did not fix the problem of death. People didn't stop dying by keeping the law. So that's the digression on law. We'll come back to law in a moment. But first, a qualification. So Paul is suggesting that the work of Christ and the work of Adam, there's a parallel. There's a correspondence. But knowing that could lead you to a misunderstanding. It could lead you to think there's an equivalence in the value of that work. That 
essentially Christ came to reverse the polarity of what Adam did, and, and Christ basically did Adam's deeds in the opposite direction, basically made up for what Adam had done. But actually, what Christ had to do was much, much more than that. The value of Christ's work is infinitely greater than Adam's work. It's merely the mechanism that is analogous, the way that is transmitted. And so Paul talks about a contrast between what he calls the free gift of grace and the trespass. So the work of Christ and the work of Adam. He says the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ." The free gift is not just like sin in reverse. It's not just that that there was an act of disobedience that needs to be canceled out by an act of obedience. Christ actually had to accomplish much more than Adam did. The work of Adam had to suffice in order to destroy, but the work of Christ had to remake. Adam's work brought death, but Christ's work had to do something much harder, give life. So as a result, there was much more that Christ's death did than what Adam's disobedience accomplished. The free gift of grace abounds much more. And the picture that that Paul paints is of grace lavished, of grace overflowing in abundance. The goodness that flows from the cross of Jesus Christ is incalculable. Now, for us, it's much easier to grasp the incalculability of the work of Adam. You live in the world long enough, you become conscious of the consequences of sin, evil, death in the world. The best people die. The most admirable people suffer. The world is not fair, and there is no real justice. And then we die. That's what happens to us. All of that a consequence of sin. And, And you're always discovering new layers to it. Like even as a Calvinist, who goes around talking about total depravity, you're always discovering new layers. Oh, it's totaler than I thought. I had no idea how total this was in myself and in the world around me. Right? Constantly discovering layers. And yet when we look at grace, sometimes it's difficult for us to see that, that if, if sin has a thickness to it, layers to it, if, if evil has tendrils everywhere, grace is so much more in overabundance, abounding, covering, restoring, repairing, giving life where there was death. We can't compare the two. We can't compare the two. We receive the righteousness of Christ just as we received the disobedience of Adam. But that's where the comparison ends. The work of Christ and what we gain from Christ is so much greater than what was given to us by Adam. So now, having said that, digressed into the law, 
qualified the idea that the law could be the solution to sin and death, and then further qualified any misunderstanding we might have about the two works of Adam and Christ being comparable. Now, Paul can go back and actually complete his thought, fully state his analogy. So we get this in verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The term that some theologians would use to describe this is imputation, imputation, that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us in our justification. We are counted righteous despite the fact that we are actually sinful. If we see in ourselves the sinfulness and this corruption, but if we are covered in the blood of Christ, we are accounted righteous for his sake. And that's also how we came to be sinners. Not saying that that you're not a sinner because you actually sin. Of course, you do. But you were a sinner before that. You stood condemned before that, before you were even born. The imputation of Adam's sin was the mechanism for that condemnation. So what Paul is stating in the analogy is... You don't have to work for your salvation any more than you had to work for your condemnation. But you do work. Just as your sin flows out of your sinful nature, obedience will flow out of your your sanctified nature. And yet, even that obedience isn't what saves you. It isn't work you do to earn the favor of God. It is a consequence of what you have received from him through imputation, the righteousness of Christ given to you. And now, because no digression is complete without a second digression, Paul continues. He goes back to the law, but with a difference, because where before he was talking about the law in a way of sort of um, distancing the law as a possible solution, now he's going to bring the law into uh, relation with the real solution, with grace, and explain how they fit together. This is verses 20 and 21. He says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me read you the paraphrase. Law intruded into this process to multiply law-breaking, but where sin was multiplied, grace immeasurably exceeded it, in order that as sin established its reign by way of death, so God's grace might establish its reign in righteousness and result in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we've seen many times before in the Old Testament, in the Levitical system, you had many types and shadows that foresignified Christ to come. In the sacrifices, we learned of the necessity for a sacrifice to atone for sin. But when Christ came, he fulfilled all that. And now we see that the law serves a similar function, that the law as schoolteacher during this period of the Old Testament served to multiply law-breaking, which sounds pretty bad that the law existed to bring us more fully under condemnation. But what that has the 
effect of doing is making the glory of Christ all the more apparent in contrast. What the law does is not only show how inadequate we are, but it shows how all-surpassingly adequate Christ is in comparison, because he's the one who fulfills it and whose obedience in fulfilling it is attributed to us. So the law isn't bad because it brings our sin into the light and multiplies transgressions. In fact, it also multiplies the glory of Christ by showing all that he had to overcome. In other words, the law reveals the true extent of the problem. It helps us see how big of an issue sin really is. It increases Christ's glory by showing that no other solution to the problem was possible. Some of you have had to spend time in emergency rooms. I had to do that recently. Uh, When you're sitting in the waiting room, in the emergency room, you kind of look around and try to figure out what's wrong with everybody else. Right? There are people who definitely don't seem to be in as much pain as others. So you kind of work out a pecking order in your mind as you as you're waiting, and uh, you know who should be seen first, that sort of thing. Um, Imagine that you went into the emergency room with a gunshot wound. This is the kind of thing I think about when I go to the emergency room. Like, will there be any good gunshot wounds to see? Um, There weren't when I was there, but you can picture this scene. You've been shot, maybe uh, grievously wounded, let's say in the gut, because I hear that's really painful. And you've now been brought into the emergency room, and they, they wheel you in as you're bleeding profusely, and a doctor comes to diagnose your situation. He gets a Band-Aid out, he puts it over the wound, and he gives you some Advil and says you're ready to go. Now, gunshot wounds, if I understand correctly, painkillers and bandages are relevant to that problem. But bandages in the form of Band-Aids and painkillers in the form of Advil maybe are not enough. And if a doctor tried to treat my gut shot that way, I would think, think maybe he didn't understand the full extent of the problem. Like maybe he wasn't taking the problem seriously enough if he thought his Band-Aids and, and aspirin were going to be good enough. But I would suggest to you that that's exactly the way we tend to treat the problem of sin. And because of that, because we tend to see sin as something that, that Band-Aids and Advil can take care of, we tend to think we don't need the God of Scripture, the, the Christ of the Gospels, as much as we really do. When we talk about longing for more grace at grace, one of the the things that means, longing for more grace, is more grace in salvation. And the more aware you are of the problem of sin, the more grace you need in order to solve it. Some of you uh, have heard me quote this before because I do it every 10 minutes or so. But uh, J.I. Packer in his introduction to John Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, uh, attempts to boil down uh, Reformed theology, the the doctrine of salvation as as we embrace it at grace. And, And he uses these words. He says, this is what it is. God saves sinners, period. And if you can say those words, God saves sinners, period, and not feel the need to add anything, not feel the need to say, God saves sinners, but sinners also need to pitch in. God saves sinners, and there's also some other things you can do to, to maintain that salvation. If you 
can be at peace saying God saves sinners without qualification, without digression, then you're standing on that same ground. You're saying, essentially, the problem of sin is so great that nothing, nothing can can undo the damage apart from God himself and his son, Jesus Christ. We don't understand the problem of sin, how all-pervasive it is, how difficult it is. So we tell ourselves that maybe the solution to sin is to live a better life. We tell ourselves that if we start behaving ourselves, if we don't do all the bad things we used to do, if we straighten out our acts, that maybe that's the way to enter into God's favor. If we're just not as bad as other people, if we hold to the right views, if we embrace the right politics, if we start going around preaching the right theology, then God will be pleased with us, and that will make everything good. When the reality is that your sin is much greater than you realize, and none of that is good enough. Those are just band-aids over a gaping wound that cannot possibly address the issue of sin. In 1 Corinthians 15, where we saw Paul use the, the words the last Adam to describe Christ, the context that he's speaking of there is resurrection. He's talking about resurrection. Uh, Christ's resurrection from the dead, but also the hope that we have of resurrection as well. Because the Christian gospel is not that if we accept Christ in this life, then we die, our spirits will leave our bodies and we will go to live in heaven with God forever as disembodied spirits. But rather, there is a hope on the last day of spirit and body being reunited the body being brought back to life. It's different, it's spiritual, but it's a body. We will be embodied. That is the hope of the gospel, bodily resurrection. And in that context, this comparison is made between the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam who brought death and the last Adam who brings life. Adam in the garden set a pattern for existence that we have come to accept as normal and natural. Life and death, and life, and death. Generation after generation, people live, and then they die, and then they're done. And then other people live, and then they die, and then they're done. And if you pull back over time, it is all meaningless. It is nothing. And, and all that matters is what mattered to you in the moment, and nothing lasts. And that's just the way it is. And we try to accommodate ourselves to that view of reality. But even those of us who don't believe in God or who reject the God of Scripture still, in our small ways, fight against it. Fight against the acceptance of death, the normalness of suffering. We don't just decide to embrace it and think, well, injustice must be good because it is the way of the world. Instead, something inside of us revolts against the idea. We tell ourselves, this isn't the way things should be. And the Bible says, you're right. That the pattern of existence established by Adam in the fall of life and death and life and death is not the true pattern of human existence This is a consequence of the fall. History is not cyclical. A circle of life and death and life and death. That way seems to us 
true. It seems natural because death is so powerful, so inescapable. Death is more powerful than everything but grace. Death is more powerful than everything, Scripture says, but grace. Grace is more powerful than death. The story of Scripture is the story of human history, and human history is not cyclical. There's a line. There is an arc. There is a storyline, if you will, that we are moving towards. And it's not life and death and life and death and life and death. It's life and death and resurrection to new life. That's the story Christ tells. The end of the story isn't destruction and death. The end of the story wasn't written by the first Adam, but by the last. The end of the story is life. Which means as you come to see the many layers of evil in the world and you come to terms with its depravity and the all-pervasiveness of death and, and of sin, don't give up. Don't give in to despair. Don't surrender to the idea of the meaninglessness of it all, but rather see that as great as sin and death are, grace is great out of all proportion. Grace is much greater and much more and is lavished with more abundance. Children of Adam, which is what we are, children of Adam, Christ has given us the grace to become children of God, to enjoy life in Jesus Christ. Let us embrace it. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.